When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Southern Gothic is a podcast that explores the history behind some of the American South's darkest days, greatest mysteries, and most chilling ghost stories. It was quite likely hot and humid on that fateful August morning in 1727, when two P-Rows landed on the banks of the Mississippi River at around 5 a.m., carrying 12 Ursuline nuns. These women had bravely left their comfortable religious lives back in France to answer what they believed was a divine calling to labor in the nascent city of New Orleans. Unlike medieval nuns of years past who lived a monk-like existence in isolated communities, filling their time with contemplative silence and prayer, the Ursuline order that sprung up in late 16th century France was radically different. These were women of action, and the main way that they spread their faith was through female education. So when they were asked to venture across the ocean to administer to the lower Mississippi River Valley, they did exactly that, and they endured a treacherous five-month journey in the process. Their mission was to establish a hospital, lay the foundation for an observant Catholic community, and attempt to convert native peoples to Christianity. But when they got there, it became clear rather quickly that their role in the colony would be much different than they had expected. You see, New Orleans was not exactly the thriving colonial capital that folks in France were being told it was. In reality, the community, which was founded only 10 years prior, in 1718, was primarily filled with soldiers, enslaved Africans, and convicts and troublemakers who the King of France sent over to populate it. Not exactly the type of people who would create a thriving Catholic city. Well, those 12 Ursuline nuns would eventually rise to the occasion, embrace the challenges ahead of them, 
and make an undeniable impact on New Orleans's future. However, upon their arrival in 1727, what they found was best described by one of their own, a 23-year-old woman named Sister Hachard. In the end, the devil is a great empire here, but this does not take away from us the hope of destroying him with God's love. Not only do debauchery, bad faith, and all other vices reign here more than any other place, but they do so in abundance. Almost three centuries have passed since Sister Hachard wrote that now infamous statement. But New Orleans's reputation as the devil's empire has hardly wavered. A characterization that has been bolstered not only by real-life events, but also the supernatural lore that has infamously weaved itself into the fabric of this community. A city that is not only filled with tales of vampires and ghosts, but was also once purportedly the home of the devil himself. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. devil used to have a house in New Orleans. They say he kept his woman there, dressing her in silks and velvets and loading her with priceless jewels. They say too that he ruled the roost as the devil would, coming and going when and as he saw fit. But he did not come and go by the front door. He passed through the front gable of the house, high up, and paused on a secret balcony up there, surveying the premises at his leisure and then descending upon the woman of his choice like a monstrous evil bird of the night. They say, they say. These are the words of Jean Delavigne, as published in her 1946 book, Ghost Stories of Old New Orleans. You see, according to legend, sometime back around the 1820s, the devil decided to make the Crescent City his home and so for years, folks claimed that if you stopped in front of the mansion at 1319 St. Charles Avenue, right around sunset, and you looked up at the top at the front gable, the Prince of Darkness would be standing there, quote, grinning and twisting his evil lips, his eyes keen as needles, and his sharp little horns quite visible. Now, this mansion is no longer there but its reputation has certainly not faded, and records of its construction are absolutely non-existent. Although, that might make sense because, they say, one day there was nothing there, and the next, there was something. Legend claims that the devil built his home one room at a time, 
completing not only the walls and floors and the like, but also entirely furnishing the room before moving on to the next. He began on a Monday and hastily built room after room, rushing to complete his stately home in time for Sunday, because apparently even the devil ain't supposed to work on the Sabbath. As such, the mansion ended up a little out of sorts. No two rooms were on the same floor, and so, all over the house where there would have been thresholds, there were instead steps up and down, down and up. An odd feature to say the least, but y'all, this was the home of the devil. Of course, as soon as the mansion was ready, Old Scratch didn't just move in. He brought with him a beautiful French mistress named Madeleine Freneau. She was a coy, beautiful young woman with a tripping step as light as a brook, murmuring over pebbles. Her voice was like a cuckoo calling and her hands were like the petals of peach blossoms. No one really remembers how long the pair lived at that property on St. Charles. But what they do is that one day, after all of that work and effort to build this mansion, the devil and his wife just up and disappeared. And that tall, ornate home that he was in such a rush to build was abandoned and left to rot in the heat and humidity of the Crescent City. And so for years, it sat decaying, slowly transitioning from an exquisite and unique property to an ominous sight. Until one day, a family moved in and began breathing a new life into the home. Not only did the new owners have a number of children filling the halls with laughter and joy, but they were also part of the social scene and frequently hosted parties and social events there. Unfortunately, they did not stay for long, as they quickly discovered that every night, as the sun began to set, a horrific, ghostly scene played out in the dining room before them. A truly terrifying spectral sequence of events that began with the nightly appearance of a massive dining table. It appeared right there underneath the beautiful crystal chandelier in the center of the mansion's great dining room, which stretched the entire length of the building. The table was set for two, but it certainly had everything you'd expect of an upscale dinner. Expensive linens, fine silver, exquisite crystal and delicate china. Then, not long after, the apparitions of a man and a woman appeared in the ornate dining room chairs, and each and every night they began dinner, just as any couple would. But those who watched might have noticed that the woman seemed to gaze at that gentleman in a way that foretold the horrors that onlookers were about to witness. Not long after they appeared at that table, the woman picked up her satin napkin, rose, and swiftly made her way toward her companion. But before the man was even aware that she had moved, much less her intentions, that napkin was around his neck. The woman viciously strangled him with that napkin, pulling tighter and tighter as he struggled for air, and the scene only grew more and more gruesome as moments later, blood began to spray from his neck. His artery had been severed by that satin napkin's edge. 
The struggle continued on for several more moments until finally the man went limp. This scene happened night after night, over and over. So obviously it's no wonder why that family didn't stay in that mansion on St. Charles Avenue for long. And as you can expect, they were not the only ones to move in optimistically, only to change their mind. According to the now classic publication, Gumbo Yaya, a collection of Louisiana folk tales gathered by workers of the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s and 40s, quote, Many families tried to live in the Devil's Mansion, but no one could endure the nightly drama. Only one family stayed for any length of time, that of Charles B. Lorendon, husband of the daughter of General P.G.T. Beauregard. While American history will forever recognize General Beauregard as the man who ordered the first shots of the American Civil War, he was in fact a Louisiana Creole, a man of French ancestry born into a family who lived in colonial Louisiana before it became a part of the United States. After the war, Beauregard returned to his home in New Orleans and was both a profitable businessman and political figure in the city. Today, his home, which is known as the Beauregard Keys House, is not only on the National Register of Historic Places, but also a museum. And y'all, I'll save that story for another day. This property is one of the most infamously haunted places in the city. Well, Beauregard had three children with his wife, Marie Antoinette Laura Villery. They had two sons and a daughter. Unfortunately, Marie died in 1850 while giving birth to that daughter, a girl named Laura. And this is the young woman who moved into that mansion on St. Charles sometime around the year of 1882. She had married Charles Lorendon in March of 1878, and the pair welcomed their first daughter, Lillian, in 1881. Of course, upon moving into the home, they, just like previous residents, purportedly witnessed the nightly visions of murder and violence. But, unlike the folks before them, the Lorendons were not going to be pushed out. Jean Delavine explains, Maybe it was because the Lorendons had seen the gaunt ghosts of war stalk up and down the beloved Southland. And maybe it was because Madame's French blood understood the other French girl of an earlier day. At any rate, they did not mind the ghosts. Tragically, though, on July 4th, 1884, Laura Beauregard Lorendon died in her home after experiencing complications from the birth of their second daughter only several weeks earlier. A truly sad fate, especially since she herself lost her own mother during childbirth. Laura's obituary which was published in the New Orleans Times-Picayune two days later, on July 6th, described the scene of her funeral, which took place at the mansion on St. Charles Avenue. In the front parlor, beneath a bower of white and pale pink roses, reposed all that was mortal of this fair woman, while in an adjoining room, 
in a cradle of down, beneath the curtains of gauze, slept the infant daughter who was never to realize her loss, and unconscious, happily, of the presence of the dread messenger who had come to summon away the dearest of all human friends, a mother. But if this wasn't tragic enough, things only got worse for Lorendon, as on March 25, 1888, his oldest daughter Lillian died at about six or seven years old. So Charles took his youngest and now only child up to Georgia, where he enrolled her in school and left her to be raised by relatives before returning home to New Orleans, where he continued to live in the Devil's Mansion alone. They say he lived there for years, defying the ghosts, and they say that he kept a journal, which they say included the quote, secret of the mysterious house. It seems that Charles Lorendon discovered the truth behind that horrific nightly apparition. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
Now, y'all, truth be told, we have absolutely no idea where Charles Lorendon's journals are today, or even if they actually exist or not. So who knows if they really do contain the secret behind those ghostly apparitions that residents of this mansion claimed to see both before he moved in and even after he died there. But whether they're real or not doesn't really matter to folks who believe the local lore, as this story has been passed down through the Crescent City's oral history as such, claiming that those violent spirits are a product of the events that took place when the devil himself resided there. And y'all look, with a tale like this, it's kind of tough to verify it. You see, even though they say the devil built this beautiful home for his beautiful wife, the Prince of Darkness had a pretty demanding job that took him all over the world. I mean, he worked every day but Sunday, right? So Madeline Furneaux was frequently left alone in the mansion, with her only company being the little red demons who cleaned and scrubbed every square inch of the estate. And so she found a lover of her own to spend time with when the devil was away, a gentleman named Alcide Cancien. Well, every night at dusk, the young lovers dined sumptuously on a large table elegantly laid out in the center of the dining room underneath that beautiful chandelier. But one night, Madeline felt as if Alcide was acting a bit odd and that even the promise of fine food and wine, as well as maybe some other vices, failed to return his good mood. So the beautiful French woman pressed her lover, and he informed her that he had begun to doubt her. According to ghost stories of old New Orleans, he responded as such. The other night when I was on my way here, I met a man just outside. He stopped and asked me which street we were on, saying he was a stranger in the city. I told him, and he asked me if I knew a woman called Madeline Furneaux. I replied that I did, and he laughed loudly and asked me if I were in love with her. He was a tall, powerful man with piercing black eyes and expensive clothes. Do you know who he is, Madeline? Frozen in shock, the woman did the only thing she could possibly think to do lie. But Alcide already knew the answer to the question that he had posed, and he was certainly not happy to hear her deny the truth. This man said he knew you, that you were his woman, but he said he would be more than glad to make me a present of your body. He didn't mention your soul if you have one. His offer was that I take you and a million pounds of gold with you but that for all time I must be called L, and you must be called Madame L, and that only. He was not joking, for on my breast is a huge L which burns like fire, and before my eyes there is a constant flaming L which comes between you and me, no matter how close I hold you. What can that L stand for, Madeline? Her voice quivered as she responded with yet another lie. I don't know, she said knowing full well the meaning. That L was for Lucifer. Alcide then told her that the man said they could leave that very night if they wished, to which Madeline grew quite excited. But her lover had no intention of doing so and cruelly growled towards her. 
I'm not going to take you. I had no intention of doing so at any time. There are other girls much younger than you, and besides, no mistress is fit to be a wife. Fit to be a wife. Within seconds of those words leaving his lips, Madeline stood from that table, napkin in hand, and began the same chain of events that continued to echo out in that St. Charles Avenue home for decade after decade. When the devil finally arrived home, he was elated to find what he did and laughed at the sight of Madeline frantically roaming about trying to get the blood off of her hands. He then picked her dead lover up from the floor, threw him over his shoulder, and dragged Madeline by her hair up to the secret balcony he had on the roof, where he sat himself on the peak of the roof's gable and began devouring the body of Alcide, sucking his blood and crunching his bones until the only thing that remained was his skin. That he tossed back to Madeline, but the wind caught it before she could and filled it so that to her horror, the remains of Alcide stood, leaning against the wall, blowing and bulging in the wind, tormenting her before the devil finally reached for her too and devoured her just as he had her lover. All that remained was their skin, which then fell to the ground where it would be fought over by stray cats. This is the purported reason for those ghastly apparitions that plague so many residents of this infamous New Orleans home. And even after Charles Lorendon passed away, one final family attempted to make use of the property, a family headed by a woman named Mrs. Jacques. Unfortunately, as published in Gumbo Yaya, quote, she reported that she could not bear the ghastly manifestations which took place in the dining room. Her family had to cease using the room entirely and at last moved. So once again, 1319 St. Charles Avenue sat empty until finally in 1930, it was demolished. Today, there are no known photographs of what is called the Devil's Mansion not even images from the time that Charles Lorendon resided there, which, unlike the more supernatural elements of this story, can actually be verified. After all, we heard his wife's obituary earlier. In addition, everything about its construction, from its architecture to its exterior decorations, remains murky, including when it was built and how long that construction took. Now y'all, this could be that records are just difficult to track down during this period of New Orleans history. The city was expanding westward and as it grew, neighborhoods, street names, and even addresses were altered. In fact, we know that what is today 1319 St. Charles was once 355 St. Charles. And even earlier records show residential numbers without corresponding street names. That being said, some have speculated that the legacy of this property didn't come from the devil itself. Rather, it's from the inclusion of a gargoyle amongst its architectural details, which is uncommon in New Orleans. So folks very well might have thought that something sinister was going on inside the home due to this gargoyle, 
rather than seeing it as serving its more traditional purpose of actually warding off evil spirits. But look, that's just conjecture. Got nothing to actually back that up. It seems the closest we can actually come to knowing what the mansion looked like is from old newspaper advertisements offering the residents available for rent. The earliest was in 1896, and it stated that this was, quote, the finest residence on the avenue, very roomy and richly furnished. Then, a 1905 advertisement called it a, quote, princely, elegantly furnished mansion, four baths, etc. These ads all occurred during the time in which the property was owned by Charles Lorendon. However, it is uncertain if he was looking to rent it out in entirety or just individual rooms for extra income, which was common for the time. Some retellings of the tale also claim that Lorendon eventually abandoned the building around 1909 in order to live at a different property on Union Street. But that's unlikely because city directories specifically identify 1319 St. Charles Avenue as his residence. Not to mention his sole surviving daughter occasionally returned to New Orleans and is even listed on the 1910 census with her father as a resident of that St. Charles Avenue home. So as far as we can tell, Lorendon really did live in the mansion until his death and his daughter likely stuck around for at least another year before heading back to Georgia. After that, the property changed hands several times, and the 1920 census shows that it was used as a boarding house for eight lodgers and a family of five. Of course, as I mentioned in 1930, the building was finally demolished. One of the most interesting parts of this legend, though, is that the story of the Devil's Mansion has remained largely unchanged from the way it was published in 1946 by Jean Delavigne, who, interestingly enough, was alive at a time when the mansion was still standing. So, unlike much of the local lore that we've covered here over the years, while there may not be a lot of records to verify elements of the story, the individual chronicling the oral history surrounding this building was awful close to the source and very likely grew up not only hearing the tale, but witnessing it play out. Of course, even after the Devil's Mansion was demolished, Miss Delavine claimed folks still preferred to walk on the other side of the street from where it used to be. Because even though the devil wasn't there anymore, he could always come back. After all, just because centuries have passed, Sister Hachard's words still seem to linger on in New Orleans. The devil has a great empire here. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independent podcast produced by siblings Brianne 
and Brandon Schecksneider. If you're a fan of the show and would like more content, be sure to join us over on Patreon or become a premium subscriber on the Apple Podcast app. There, you'll receive access to both ad-free and monthly bonus episodes. For more info on Southern Gothic, be sure to visit southerngothicmedia.com today. And as always, thanks for listening. Lucky Little Shacks. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.